We're in the month of Elul. Last week we had our first meeting. The month of Elul is the month before Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is now coming soon in about uh, nine days. And uh, in the month of Elul, the Jewish custom is it's time for self-reflection, for uh, reviewing our lives, for preparing for a new year, and I called this class a, uh, both a class and a support group, so that we could take this not just as, it is not merely an intellectual exercise. The goal of us being together here in this community is to actualize our um, highest values. That's what we want to do. And each of us want, I want each of us to have the opportunity to do that, not in a way that's legislated, but in a way that's authentic for you. And what we can do as a support group is support one another to express our deepest held values, goals, desires. Whether they align exactly with the others in this room, it doesn't matter. Um, and then, um, have them in our hearts and our minds so that we can enact them in the coming year. So I'll be sharing some things that are uh, sort of the Jewish context for this that are worthwhile to know and very interesting. Um, and, but then we're going to be, in the latter part of the class, uh, focusing on ourselves and um, creating a, as we do here, a, um, I guess the... You know, safe is an important word. Vibrant, open, non-judgmental, caring space so that each of us can express ourselves and our uh, values, our deepest values and goals. Uh, that way, we can enter the new year primed to be the selves we want to be in the new year. So first of all, Ellen... Rabbi Ellen just sent me a poem uh, that was posted on, is Lex a rabbi? He's a rabbinic student. A rabbinic student. That's enough. It's uh, just uh, named Lex Rofus, who is posting, among other things, poems for the month of Elul. And I want to read you this poem because it's a good one. And it's also by Leonard Nimoy. You may not have known that Leonard Nimoy also was a poet. And... Um, and part, a photographer, a serious Jew. Um, he was a very deep guy. And Dr. Spock. And Mr. Spock. Mr. Dr. Spock, Mr. Spock, Mrs. Spock, but they all mushed together. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, listen to this poem. I wanted to read it. Thank you for sending it to me, Ellen. You and I. I am not immortal. Whatever I put off for later may never be. Whoever doesn't know now that I love them may never know. I have killed time. I have squandered it. I have lost days and weeks. As a man of unlimited wealth might drop coins on the street and never look back. I know now that there will be an end, a limit. But there is time valuable and precious time to walk, talk, breathe, time to touch, 
taste, care, to warm the child who is cold and lonely. There is time to love. I promise myself I will. I am. I am ready. I am ready to give. I am ready to give and to receive. I am ready to give and to receive love. That's the next poem. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we can post it. I mean, I can get that around to you. All right. <clears throat> so, since many of you here were not here last week, I'm going to give a very brief review uh, of what we did last week. Last week, I introduced a concept in Judaism, not unique to Judaism, but a concept in Judaism that is, that is um, present throughout our mystical teachings, our mystical and spiritual uh, um, literature that discusses that the, our universe is constructed of four worlds. The four worlds. In other words, different levels and layers of experience. None more valid than any other. And that uh, as human beings, our consciousness and our, our, ourselves range over all of these worlds, these realms, these levels. I said that I would uh, give you um, um, a handout. So I, I looked online for a nice graphic, and um, I have one. I'll pass it out in a moment. Um, it's certainly good enough, and it's, it's evocative. The four worlds fundamentally are the world of doing, the world of feeling, the world of thinking, and the world of being. Right? And, or you might say the world of action, the world of emotion, the world of intellect, and the world of spirit. Uh, there are so many ways to describe these levels that you'd be making a mistake to try to fix them. As, oh, this is the map of the universe. Right? It's a Somehow we humans like fours, we like threes, we like fours, and three and four are seven, so we like sevens. We like tens, you know, we just do. So we organize our experience in these frameworks, and it's helpful. And then, sometimes we forget and we think that this framework is an actual map of reality, right? No, it's, an, it's, a, it's an, a, 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 a sort of a guide, a way to frame experience, but we don't have to be stuck with it. Do you know what I mean? In other words, if it's helpful, use it. If, you, if it's not, find a different framework. But this one has really lasted. It's got legs, you know, so there's something very helpful about it because people keep coming back to it. it. And not just in Judaism, but we know the fours that, uh, that uh, of um, a body, emotion, <coughs> intellect, spirit, that, that we think of a lot, right? When you get into it, if you start looking this up, you'll see that some, uh, you'll see some websites that say, no, 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 there's five. Right, okay, it's all fine with me. Right? This is not reality. 
All right, this is, a, this is humans trying to schematize our experience so that we can organize ourselves in the direction we want to be going in. Make sense? Okay, so those, that's four worlds. Um, and as I've said for many years, uh, I want to be operating on all pistons, right? I want to be examining myself to see that I'm not emotionally stuck and explore and be bold and be, be brave in opening myself to my emotional world. I want to examine my values, my intellectual foundations, my creative uh, self, and see that I'm not rigid and stuck there. I want to be, I, that's why I think of a, an engine that's lubricated and functioning well, right? I want it to be moving, and certainly my body. I don't want my body to be rigid uh, and unmoving. And uh, then the realm of spirit, which we began with, is I said last week, and I'm going to be repeating today, and I'll be repeating on the high holidays. We don't know exactly what our soul is, but we know when we've lost it. Okay? I didn't coin that, but I can't place where I heard it from. Okay? We don't know exactly what our soul is, because how can we? How could you possibly know exactly what that is? But we know when we've lost it. Therefore, whatever your spiritual or non-spiritual attitude towards life is, um, uh, you have a deep connection to something, to some quality, energy, attributes that are larger than yourself that feed you and sustain you. Let's call it our soul, our neshama. In the Jewish frame, our neshama is by definition connected to the source of all. It's the point in us that, when I say point, I'm using Hasidic terminology. In other words, a point, it, a point is, an, is a, um, in math, it has no, exists, but has no area or volume, right? In other words, it's a place where we touch infinity. And so in Jewish spiritual uh, teachings, it will often talk about a nikudaprimit, an inner point, where our self touches something that leads to infinity. Okay. Nikudaprimit, inner point. Uh, so we have a lot, many of us are experiencing a, a, a real sense of urgency this year that we need to be acting in the world, manifesting our values, right? And that sense of urgency, while very important, can also derail us because it can disconnect us from the source of our inspiration. And we can, we can, we can then simply be functioning on either bitterness or anger or fear, or desperation. And in my, uh, my opinion as a spiritual teacher, while we can get a lot done that way, there's something about it that's 
in the end not going to re- redound to our benefit. That what we want to be doing, as, as we said last time, spiritual beings having a human experience um, is the bumper sticker, as opposed to human beings having a spiritual experience. What if we're spiritual beings right now having a human experience? Uh, we want to retain the connection to that which enlivens us, inspires us, calms us, grounds us, feeds our souls. We want to feed that soul. So, in Jewish teaching, that realm is also known as the realm of Shabbat. Because the way way Judaism understands the world and how it's organized and what human beings need is that six out of seven days we pursue our best activities in the world. We do mitzvot. We engage in the world by fulfilling the righteous and the obligations of being a human being. And we do it with as much energy and as much conviction as we can. But then on Shabbat, we want to stop and restore our connection to that which sustains us. Now that doesn't just have to happen one day a week. That's just the Jewish model. It's like, but I like it. What if we took 14% of our time? You know, and made sure our spirits, our values, our actions were aligned and that we were feeling, once again, not just the urgency of the moment, but also the glory of being alive. That's how I describe it. For me, when I can experience the glory of being alive, I can go meet the world again without uh, without um, panic or um, anger and still just do what has to be done. So last time I said, in each of these four weeks we're going to focus on one of these four worlds. So I said, but let's not start with the world of action. Let's start with the world of spirit. Right? Let's identify each for ourselves how we want to stay connected to the glory and the, the grace and the astonish, the just infinite, astonishing character of every moment. And so last time, we split into small groups after we had spoken about this, and each person had a chance to reflect on that. And that's what we did last week. So I'm going to encourage you, if you weren't here, to think about that, because we're not going to do that this week. Um, this week, uh, I, I want to focus on the, 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 this, the next level, which is called Bria. Uh, Bria comes from the same root as uh, Breshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. Bria is a noun of meaning creation. So let me hand out this uh, uh, graphic. And we'll look at the four worlds again before we, before we go any further. Would you take one and pass it around, please? Thank you. If 
found that if I walk around, it goes faster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you get the exercise. <laughs> I already went to the gym today. Yeah, but you know what they say about sitting. <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Here, Bob, give me, uh, give me those now. Just do this quickly. This is a nice evocative um, graphic because when we're talking about the four worlds, we're in the realm of poetry and association, and there are many associations with four and with in, in, in Hebrew, so in the Jewish tradition. So again, the four worlds, Asiyah at the bottom, the physical world, world of action, doing, Yitzira, world of feelings, emotions, creativity, growth. I would also say relationships. <coughs> for me, that's where I, that belongs there for me. Bria is the world of creation, the intellectual plane. God is source of consciousness, being, bliss, radiating out a universe from itself, whatever that means. Um, if it means something to you, great. But if it doesn't, that's fine. Because uh, these, aren't, these aren't my words but they, they're meaningful to someone who wrote this. I look at the, um, and then Atzilut, God beyond all words, infinite light. Atzilut means emanation. That's what Atzilut means in English, to emanate or to effulgence, uh, um, that which sort of flows out from constantly, right? The, uh, the energy that undergirds, that informs, that creates our universe, but that we can't uh, grasp. We can't put, put it in a bottle in any way at all, um, and yet we sense its existence, its, its vivifying existence. It's beyond our conceptual ability, even as we search for words to describe it but we can experience it. And then uh, many, 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 many poems have been written to experience that, that to, to try to describe that experience. Um, for me, and this is just for me, so, uh, but I'm going to, for me, Bria, as the intellectual plane, is also the world of our concepts, our worldview, our values, our beliefs. It's, a, it's how we construct meaning. All of that. You follow what I'm saying? And whereas I look at the world of Yetzira as the world of relationships, um, uh, how we relate in the world, informed by those values. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, uh, but also... Um, uh, and, and Yitzir is the world of emotions, as I described. And then Asiya, the physical world, the world of doing, is how we enact. What specifically? It's, it's, 
it's getting down to tachlis, right? Tachlis is the Yiddish word for um, brass tacks, that's how it's, or bottom line, or, you know, that's kind of, huh? Nuts and bolts. Nuts and bolts, that's a good one, right? Nuts and bolts, what are you going to do now, okay? That's a Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I was describing in the last class how uh, um, there are, if you think whichever of these worlds you privilege the most, it's the one that's going to get your most energy, right? And if your beliefs and value systems say there is no realm of Matzilut, there is no emanating infinite source, then you won't privilege feeding your soul that way. And you'll focus on something else. I'm gonna, I want to propose to us that, that we find our connection to all four levels. I don't legislate belief. You know, that's not, that's, a, for me, that's the kiss of death uh, to tell you this is what's so and this is what's not in that regard. And then, you know, what if that's not your, your way of experiencing life, you know? That doesn't mean that I think values are relative. I, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about orthodoxy. Right? Orthodox is a word in, that means right belief. It's Greek. Orthodox means right belief. And if there's only one orthodoxy, everything else is heter- heresy, right? Uh, then where does that leave you if you don't happen to line up? with that particular formulation of what reality is. It's just words anyway. It's a, so, I am definitely not orthodox. Um, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, um, okay, so now, how, looking at this nice graphic, we can actually learn a lot about Jewish mysticism from it. Uh, here, this is for Susan. Um, so tell me, what, do you, what has the artist uh, uh, put in here? The yod hey vav hey. Uh, the yod hey vav hey is the ineffable name of God. We don't pronounce it. When you see yod hey vav hey in a prayer book, you say, usually say Adonai. Some of us say Yah. Some of us now, uh, there's all kinds of things to do, except we don't pronounce yod hey vav hey. It's the ineffable name of God. That doesn't mean yod hey vav hey doesn't exist. It's just we can't, uh, I've said this before, define it. Another important English word. If yod hey vav hey represents the infinite as it becomes experienced in our lives, as soon as you define it, it is no longer infinite. Right? Because to define God means to give it a boundary. That's what de- defi- that's what it means. Confine. And huh? Oh, it becomes con- to confine it becomes also. And we need definitions. That's how we function in the world of doing and also the world of concepts and the world of emotions. We need those definitions. But then, to touch the soul plane, we also have to know that there's that which cannot be defined. Uh, And so, um, 
yud hey vav becomes an incredibly creative template in the Jewish spiritual tradition for trying to, uh, again, schematize this and, and get a feeling for it. And uh, so the yud, which is, in, in Greek, yud is iota, the little iota, the, the, the little, the jot, the, that's what, uh, when it says jot and tittle, that's, uh, um, so yud is like the point. And so the yud is always associated with the emanation of something from nothingness. This experience and nothingness, again, comes to the word no thing. In other words, nothingness doesn't mean it, that it's not existent, but it means it's not a thing. And yet, out of nothingness, thingness emerges. In the beginning, everything was formless and void. That's the story trying to express this amazing creative process that we all intuit and experience in our lives. Uh, and so the Yud is considered to be the world of emanation. And the hay, the first hay, is um, uh, considered to be this, the, the, uh, the, the world of creation, and the Vav becomes the world of formation, uh, the world of emotions, and the hey, the world of Asiya. They do not exist separately. They are linked perpetually in the process of creation that we call yod hey vav Yod-Hei-Vav-Hei, again, is not a noun, right? When God, when Moses asks God, what's your name? God says, Eheyeh asher Eheyeh. I am becoming that which I am becoming. yod hey vav hey, as best as we can figure, is either a non-existent verbal construction of the verb to be, to cause to be. Could be he who causes to be, to be. Or it's a combination of the future tense, the present tense, and the past tense of the word, of the, of the verb to be. Hayah is past tense, hovet is present tense, yihye is future tense. You mash them all together, and I would translate yod as is, was, will be. Again, if you're new to this, where Judaism is wedded to language, we see creativity emerging from language. God says, let there be light. And yet, so we play with language in order to express what cannot be expressed in a word. Is, was, will be. Becomingness. Like, God is not static. Nowhere, especially in the Jewish mystical tradition, can we define God as static in any way. Um, therefore, God is being, but not a being. Do you follow what I'm saying? And David Cooper wrote his book, God is a Verb, to try to explain all this. Uh, so God is the energy manifesting itself through all these realms. It's superimposed on the human form, which is very traditional, customary sort of thing to do. Playing with the letters, the yod is the head, the hay is the shoulder girdle and the arms, the vav is the whole spinal column, 
and the lower hay is the pelvic girdle and the, you know the pelvis and the legs, for example. So it's a way of describing that. What does it mean? Mean that we are made in God's image, right? These are the great questions of yeah, you know of Jewish, and, and especially since since we propose that we're made in God's image, what does that mean if God isn't a static being? It must reflect something about our beingness. And if we are to bring God's presence in the world, we somehow have to manifest this process of creativity. We have to take wordless inspiration, transform it into concept feed it through our hearts, and then enact it in the world, right? Anyone who's an artist or a writer or a gardener or a, knows what, or a thinker or a, knows what it means to get a flash of insight, to ponder it and think it over, and then to figure out how maybe I could manifest that in the world. It operates in every realm. This is not just an artistic question. We are all, we are all by definition, creators, Right? And to the degree that we can manifest this creative process that is yod heh vav we fulfill what the Torah insists is our potential to be made in the image of God. We become creators. But creators who are connected, not creators who are doing it for our, connected to everything. Not creators who are doing it merely for own ego gratification. That doesn't mean we don't have egos. Right? We need our egos. If we didn't have our egos, we might not ever get out of bed, get out of bed and try this stuff. We wouldn't be alive. No. We wouldn't be alive. No, no, it's not, about, it's not about not having an ego or a fully formed sense of self or anything. It's about what we put ourselves in service to. And if we start thinking that we are fixed selves, uh, that, and that what we're doing somehow with our lives is ensuring our immortality or some nonsense such as that. We're barking up the wrong tree. It's this, this, not this tree. This is the tree of life. Um, because the other way that yod often gets described is as a tree of life. Um, and the tree image is so potent for us. And again, I'll describe this briefly. We've talked about it many times. But its roots are unseen. Often the tree in Jewish mystical literature is pictured suspended from heaven with its leaves and flowers and fruits here on earth. Right? Uh, so it's sort of an inverted tree, except if you want to be an earth-based person, you might as well have it be in the dark earth, you know. So, um, so the roots are the unseen place of, source of our life force. And uh, uh, out of that grows a trunk and branches and fruits. And um, that is when you think of the life of a tree. Uh, it's a beautiful image because when the leaves and fruits fall, they decompose and feed the cycle again. So that again, imagine a tree that tried to not let its leaves fall or have its fruit, fruit ripen and then rot. It's like you lacquered it 
you know, I mean, so the reason the tree of life is such a fantastic metaphor is because even though the tree appears to be static and appears to be a, you know, and gives us great comfort, gives me great comfort, a good tree, there's nothing about it that is fixed. It's a system that is fixed. It's a system and constant motion. So, Bob, please. That came to me as you were talking. The only living thing that stands upright is a human being, and the use of the four letters to model the body only works it for an upright person. So, an enslaved person, a person lying down, a person unable to be free, cannot carry that name the way an upright person. That's beautiful. The way the Torah says that in Deuteronomy is, "I am Yod Hey Vav Hey, your God." who brought you out of Egypt and broke, and broke the bars of the yoke and allowed you to walk upright. That's right. A subjugated person cannot fulfill what our tradition understands is our um, uh, potential to be images of the divine. Mm-hmm. Your stature is in your stance. Your stature. Of course, there are people who can't stand upright, but that's a different, you know, you can still, you can still, they, and also, this is poetry anyway, let's adapt it as as our own understanding expands. Myrna? I don't know where this fits in, but a tree can die, but wood will will still have some life in it. In other words, wood still stays, wood, you know, Due to temperature, wood can change, um, and yet the tree can die. So I don't know where to take it. Well, I love the tree of life as a metaphor because I love trees so much, and because they shade me and they feed me and they they comfort me and they. So I just have a great relationship with trees, and so the idea of God as a tree of life or the Torah as a tree of life is beautiful to me. So yeah, the the metaphor is very very rich. Avis? I think that talking about it in this way is so important for the High Holy Days because we talk about Jonah and when he was sitting under the tree. He's sitting under a gourd, a vine. A mm-hmm. And that, that now to me it's like that tree of life and because he didn't appreciate it and didn't, want it, didn't help it grow that it was in a way almost poisoned because his spirit didn't allow it to create and to grow Thank you. Thank you. Jonah didn't invest in that tree that was shading him. He just resented the whole thing. Yeah, that would be a, a metaphor to extend to how we're treating our entire world. Yes, Anne. Well, when a tree is dead, uh, it's full of life. It creates a whole ecology. It's, it's, it's brimming with life. That's right. A fallen tree is brimming with life and feeding the next... There's a beautiful, in the prayer book that we use for the shiva services, there's a beautiful poem exactly yes. about this in the last line, and, and, then, and then the rabbits make a home in it. And then the rabbits, it's foam. Trees, uh, even a dead tree is full of life. Right, that's right. Thank you. Uh, Barbara. I'm just thinking about what the research has shown lately about trees communicating with each other as well. Mm-hmm. So oh, yes. Oh, now we're learning that especially um, uh, beech trees, uh, certain trees 
have underground networks of roots. Aspen, Aspens, Aspen. also Aspens, they're also beech. So that they're gi giant underground it's organism. One, it's one organism. One giant organism, but also the evidence that's showing now that trees uh, of different varieties yeah. even will send nutrients to each other's roots. Uh, isn't it amazing? The world is just amazing. The world is astonished and as the greatest gift. So I would say, again, to make ridiculously broad statements, if this appreciation of, you know, let's say when we read a Native American uh, prayer that appreciates the interconnectedness of everything, uh, existed before the scientific revolution. And the scientific revolution gave us, uh, empowered us to study everything in a way we've never, and understand it and its interrelationships in ways we never had before, but also uh, emboldened us to think that we could separate the world into its separate component parts and still understand it. And now we have reached a point where systems theories are, force are, are, are becoming most dominant, like ecology, which is an understanding of systems, um, allows us to appreciate, to understand the interactions in an in a, a empirical way, but then to appreciate the astonishing interconnectivity of everything. That's, that's really a wonderful goal. Diane? I'd say like the scientific revolution is kind of like this paper you gave us. People name things as a way to study them and explain them, but that doesn't mean that's exactly what they are. I that's mean, there's right. so much more than that. So much more than that. Yes, so we confuse our concepts with reality. Yes, we do. Yeah, Amy. I'm just thinking about the Garden of Eden and the difference between evil and goodness and how just the Adam and Eve being expelled and how does it relate to this wonderful vision? Right, so it says, so there's, I can't tie this one up with a bow. I can just, we're in, we're in, mythic, we're in mythic realms here. But remember, it says that in the garden, first of all, so that God planted a garden, God planted this garden, and a river runs through it and, and in four directions and waters the entire earth. So the garden itself is another metaphor for the infinite source, the wellspring. The, uh, so there's that. But there's also two trees in the garden. There's the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And in that incredible story, when, the, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they become self-aware, in other words, they, end, they leave the realm of undifferentiated bliss of sort of infancy and start to say, I'm two years old now and this is mine and that's yours, you know, and this is good and that's bad and this is right and that's wrong, which is an absolutely essential feature of how we become mature human beings, right? In the process, though, we, we seem to, and this is what the story tells me, inevitably lose our connection to the tree of life, which stands in the center of the garden, uh, because we're busy differentiating. And so the goal is to get back to the garden in the sense of restore our connection to the tree of life that stands in the center of everything. And that's a lifelong process of first individuating, 
which we have to do. You have to, you have to develop a strong ego. You have to figure out, these are my hands, and this is what I do, and this is what... And the I of each person has to be fully developed in order to uh, then be able to start contemplating that, oh, there's something... I forgot. There's something much greater than just my needs and my accomplishments. That's how I, that's how I see it. That's okay. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, yeah. Okay, so yes, Bob. I'm past all. I can't do it alone. I think what you've described is to get back, you have to learn conversation, shared emotional experience. Mm-hmm. You have yes. to give up your independence and become interdependent with at least one other person. I um, want to share. Um, I, I was really. I, <laughs> when I was in my, let's see, I was in my mid 20s and. Uh, I, my wife Helen and I were already, uh, you know, very close, and we we liked to go backpacking together. And I, my experience of being ba- of backpacking was a great sort of like spiritual classroom, because I, I don't know, it's a longer conversation. But I remember one day, I always wanted to climb the highest mountain, and um, you know, uh, we'd be hiking, and I'd say, "Oh, let's go this way, let's go this way," and Helen said, "I don't want to go that way." She, she doesn't need to climb the highest mountain. That's not how she's wired, right? She's happy to walk along and look at the flowers. And, and, and I had this, this, I had one of those revelations of, you know, which are so, when afterwards you think, how was I so stupid before? But it was that, oh, in order to have what I want, which is to be with Ellen, I have to give up on some other things that I want in terms of, Climbing every highest mountain, and that you know, it, it, as I speak about it now, it's like, you know, what? But at the separate vacation, separate vacation, right? Oh no, 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 Paul, that's part of the solution. I just went to Nepal with my brother. She has no interest in that. But the point was uh, that it was only then that I was ready to grow into something beyond my adolescent self. Yeah, my, no question about it. The, the Chinese word for benevolence is the human radical with the number two. Really? Yeah. It's like the human radical and then the number and two. The number two, benevolence, yeah. uh-huh, considering the other. It takes two to think. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, so uh, I've waxed about all of this stuff with you and you've made some beautiful comments. Now, in the second part of the class, what I want to do is much more personal. I want to look at the world of Bria, considering it the world of concept, the world of values, um, uh, and um, that I want to propose that in order to live our lives as effectively and as harmoniously as Harmonious is a tough word, because I don't think life's very harmonious most of the time. Um, as effectively and as connectedly to ourselves as, as we want to, um, we need to be able to articulate what we think is important, what our values are. Uh, and then align our actions with our values 
while, as we will in the next week, taking into consideration our emotional lives and our emotional needs as well. Because we're not automatons. I know I've encountered certain people who have this astonishing capacity to say, well, this, you know, you think about the um, righteous Gentiles in the Holocaust, or in, in, who, get in, who got interviewed at great length. And they say, well, but, but didn't you realize you were risking your life? And what, he, they said, why'd you do it? I said, what do you mean? Why'd I do it? It was the right thing to do. Duh. You know, they never think of themselves as special or particularly um, exceptional or anything, but I know they are, because I'm busy with all my other considerations. Right? I'm, uh, you know, I, I aspire to that. Occasionally I can respond from my deepest value in action immediately. Most of the time I've got a lot else going on, you know. And I need to think about it, I need to talk about it, I need to decide, I can't, or this, I'm too busy, or blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so there are occasional amazing individuals I meet who, who, who live their values, you know, and who have this astonishing, to me, power of uh, uh, focus to be able to stay on track. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, but my goal still is to articulate heading into the new year what my core <laughs> values beliefs, principles are. Uh, also concepts about how, the, how creation is organized. In other words, if one of my concepts, if one of my key concepts, for example, is that the entire universe is interconnected, uh, as we now face the impact of, of human beings on global uh, climate and uh, all kinds of ways, and we're feeling it in the weather every day this summer, I suspect. Um, I can't prove that, obviously, but I certainly think so. Um, how would my core understanding of the nature of reality as being interconnected impact the decisions I make, uh, the actions I take in the coming year, in the coming day, in the coming moment. So, so I haven't done this before, personally, though I've, I've uh, read about it, but what I want us to do is to spend the next, uh, oh, um, ten, 10 minutes or so, each with a piece of paper and a pen. And if you don't have paper and pen, I have some here. And um, I'm trying to come up with the right phrase. This I believe, for example. Uh, and if you just wrote at the top of your page, this I believe. <coughs> and then write. It can be, um, you can write, you can put bullet points, you can write a narrative. You can, this, this is an opportunity to do what I would call, I guess, values clarification. Right? We are being pulled in a million directions right now. And we are constantly being distracted by painful events and painful emotions that we have in reaction to those events. So for me, Elul would be a time, and Rosh Hashanah would be a time, to pause and restate 
what I stand for, what I believe, what I care for. Um, what do you think? So I'd like to try that, and then I'd like to hear from people who feel moved to share anything that they wrote down. I'm sure it will inspire others among us. Uh, um, any questions? About 10 minutes. Is it going on for a minute, Reverend? Um, um, well, I'm going to collect the papers and give you grades afterwards. Yes, Diane. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't go in my permanent record, but it goes in the book of life. You know, seriously, we have this idea that there's a book of life where our deeds are written. And yeah, that's what we're writing. We're writing our book of life for the year. But we're starting with this, I believe. Um, so who needs paper? Huh? Sure. Let's take a let's take a short uh, bathroom break, and then we'll then we'll convene at the same time. Yes. Okay. Take a little break, everybody. Just, just one moment. I know there's a way to pause this. How the hell do I pause this? Okay.